trying out new sound system today. And uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm going to scoot up a bit. Anyway, <laughs> welcome everybody. Um, happy Father's Day for those that are fathers. And uh, we just want to lift you up today. I'll go ahead and start us off. We've got a lot to cover, so I'll start us off with prayer. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for uh, today, Lord, and uh, we do lift up the fathers in this church, and Lord, it's really appropriate that we have you to call our Father, and today we will look at your word, and in it we see that uh, you're going to take us to your house someday, and that's a very exciting uh, word to receive, and we just pray that you would uh, open up uh, the pages uh, of your of your book, Lord, and let us see the deepness of it, and just seek you uh, through it, Lord, and we ask these things through the Holy Spirit, in Jesus Christ, amen. Hello. Is that better? Well, I'm getting I'm getting a lot of. It's in, it's in my ears. Yeah. Let me go over here. <laughs> okay. Who's turning it down? Oh my gosh! I'm at the control with Gwen. Okay. <laughs> I promise to behave. <laughs> All right. Well, it just so happens. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I've lost them. It's gone. It just so happens that uh, today we've reached what I would call probably the major theme or the centerpiece of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And this is the passage that uh, speaks of our comforting hope. And uh, it should be an encouragement to us. It's the coming of Christ for his church. I think uh, I'm going to start a little differently today. I'm just going to read the entire passage that we're going to be studying, and then we'll come back to look at it in more detail. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another 
with these words. So this last passage of chapter 4 is considered by many to be one of the most important prophetic uh, portions of the New Testament. But interestingly, the removal of the church, also known as the rapture or the, the catching away of Christ's church, is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Although it may be seen in some types that are there, like we talked about Enoch, I think, last uh, last time I taught. Uh, he was taken. And then uh, also, as Porter uh, pointed up, Elijah was another. Uh, and then possibly it could be implied by some events in the Old Testament, such as the preservation of Noah and his family on the ark, or uh, by the uh, conspicuous absence of Daniel in chapter 3 of his book, uh, Remember the Fiery Furnace and uh, his three companions that went through that, and Daniel's not there. Probably the first mention that we get of this great truth is, uh, is to be found in John 14. Uh, this is when Jesus is uh, with his disciples in the upper room the night before he's crucified. It's in John 14, verses 1 through 3. So let's turn there right now and read that. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus speaking says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I love that passage. And uh, I'm sure you all do too. I get, I get comfort from that. But I suspect that the disciples didn't get any comfort from those words that night. I think that Jesus, after he said these and looked out at his disciples, probably saw 12 blank stares looking back at him. <laughs> this was not what they expected, nor what they wanted to hear. They wanted the kingdom to, to be brought in right then, but that's not God's, not, not God's plan. This was a specific promise to Jesus' disciples. And according to John 17, 20, it's, by extension, it's to all believers who've come after them. And that includes us. That Jesus was going to go to his Father's house. We know that to be heaven and prepare an abode for his own. Further, he promised to come back and to receive his own. He didn't promise to come to us. He promised to receive us. And thereafter, evermore, we would be with the Lord. Now, Jesus has not yet fulfilled that promise, has he? Uh, furthermore, the disciples and probably a large portion of the church is not even around anymore. They've gone on ahead uh, in death. So how can Jesus still fulfill this promise that he made in uh, chapter 14, both to the living and dead believers? This is probably the question that the Thessalonians apparently had, uh, that they had uh, given to Paul through Timothy when, when he reported back to Timothy. So it's pro it'll probably be good if I recap or do a, a short review 
of uh, the background associated with these Thessalonian letters right now so we can understand where the Thessalonians were coming from. They had this question. So as mentioned before, and as we've already read in Acts 17, Paul and Silas and Timothy were only in Thessalonica for probably a short time, possibly as short as three weeks. Now, in that time, though, uh, Paul had accomplished a uh, monumental achievement. He and his team, now this was his second missionary journey, uh, they had come to Thessalonica as evangelists. They had preached and they'd shared the gospel, and they had really good results. Many of the people, remember there were three basic groups, pagan, Gentiles, some prominent women, and some Jews. Many of these had come to a believing faith. They had been born again and saved, and a church was established there in Thessalonica. And then Paul began to teach. This is all within this three-week period. He begins to teach and disciple these new believers. And, he's, and he starts with the great truths of the Christian faith. Interestingly, among the truths that Paul taught was the removal or the rapture of the church by Christ at his return. And, you know, we notice that Paul did not think that this was a topic that was too complicated or too deep for new believers. So that, that should encourage us as well. And then after uh, he'd been there a short while, they were, he and the team were forced to leave Thessalonica, and they went first to Berea, they were run out of there, and then to Athens. And from Athens, Timothy and possibly Silas were sent back to Thessalonica because Paul's heart was, was heavy for the condition of the, of the Thessalonians and how they were doing. And then Paul went on to Corinth. When he meets Timothy again, he receives the report that some of the Thessalonian believers had died. You know, and this was such a short time, maybe even some of them had been martyred. That would, that's a real possibility. The living believers then had questions and were apparently very concerned with, number one, how their dead loved ones would fit into the rapture that they understood, or when those dead loved ones would be resurrected. Very important. They didn't want them to miss out. Now, this type of question in and of itself obviously indicates that Paul taught them of the imminency of the return of Christ. Otherwise, the questions wouldn't have been pertinent. So consider this. Paul had taught the Thessalonians that the Lord Jesus could come at any moment. However, in the interim, some believers had died, and the Lord hadn't come. The question was, would they miss the rapture? What was going to happen to these dead believers? So it's probably good to spend a minute and just talk about imminency, because I think sometimes we, we get a little mixed up with it. Just make a few comments. Now, saying that the return of Christ for the removal of his church is imminent is the same as saying that the event is impending. Impending. Imminency and impending. Now that does not mean that it has to be immediate or even necessarily soon. Paul doesn't use those expressions. In fact, none of his epistles suggest that he ever told believers to assume that Christ was going to return in their lifetimes. 
But when we say that the coming of Christ is imminent, we do mean two things, that it is approaching and that it is next, as in the next event on the agenda of God's program. Now, when the Bible speaks of uh, other major events or end-time prophecies, things we call eschatology, it gives some associated preceding or accompanying signs. And the rapture, however, has no preceding sign, no requirement, except possibly one, which really is probably not a sign, but actually may just be another view or perspective of the rapture, uh, what it truly is. And that, I found that in Romans 11:25 when it speaks of, there's a term given for the fullness of the Gentiles or come in. Now, I'll, I'll wait to look at that. If we have any time, we can look at that later at the end. But let's go now to the text. Back to the text and look. 1 Thessalonians 14, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. I should also point up here that the primary consideration in this passage is not that the Thessalonians are learning about the return of Christ to take them. What, what this is focused on is truly the dead in Christ, those believers that had died. That is the concern that the Thessalonians were looking at, primarily. So let me read the text again. 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Jack, I think this gives a security of Christ. Yes, very much so. And we're going to look at the security and the comfort that that provides. Of course, I've lost my place now. Okay, here we go. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. So Paul goes right to their question here. The Thessalonians were uninformed, about those who are asleep. We need to understand that asleep or sleeping is a softened term for dead believers. So that it's not that they're concerned about lazy people, they're concerned about dead people, those that sleep. Now, as just a side note, uh, at the end of this verse 13, we come across probably two of the saddest and most depressing words in Scripture. Anybody see them? No hope. You know, that should make a chill run down our spine. Because we have, in this verse, the Holy Spirit himself has uh, inspired Paul to declare that there are, there are people out there who have no hope. That means no hope regarding their future after they die. No hope forever. And God's will and desire is that no one would fall into that group. <clears throat> this is the motivation for evangelism. This should be our motivation. This was Paul's motivation. And it's really a strong one. So, anyway. <clears throat> yes?
one of the reasons I got the local paper was that somebody died who I missed the funeral and I'm upset about that. So I looked at the I looked at the obituaries and occasionally I'll read through one that I don't know, but almost every one of them says went home to be with the Lord. And some that's true of and some it may not be. But we all want that hope. Um, and so, you know, there is real hope in Jesus Christ. But a lot of people manufacture it because to live without that hope is unbearable. Oh, very much. Yeah. Unbearable without him. And so, you know, there are people I know that have died, and, I, you know, and I've come to some sort of a rationalization in my mind that they knew the Lord. You know, or I don't know they didn't know the Lord. You know, and I get, and that's the only way I can get peace. And uh, but you know the pagan religions that these people were coming out of, they didn't claim anything about an afterlife. You know, it was like eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. You know, and so you get the most out of this life. There's nothing beyond, much less <laughs> the punishment that lays beyond uh, for those <clears throat> that are not Christ. So yeah, it's a very that's right that's right because this is the best you're going to get <laughs> you know Joel Osteen right that book your best life now that's true for those people this is your best life now if you don't have Christ so <clears throat> anyway let's go uh, you know back to the text so look, let's look again at this term asleep are sleeping because we're going to see it a couple of times in this passage. Now, Paul is referring to the death as it relates to the body, the physical body here. This term never refers to soul or spirit of man. I'm going to use the term soul and spirit kind of interchangeably loosely, not, not real specific, but the consciousness, our consciousness, let's just say. Uh, those things, those parts of us don't die. <clears throat> Uh, a couple of scriptures are, are pretty good here to confirm what I'm saying. Uh, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> this is Solomon writing. This is kind of the end of the book, and he's starting to do his summation on all things that he's written. And uh, he makes a statement uh, that's uh, relevant here. 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Verses 6 and uh, 7. <clears throat> now he's just <clears throat> summing up the uh, finality of death, and he says, Remember him, referring to God, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. These are all evidence of the finality of death. Then he says, Then at death, the dust will return to the earth as it was. That's our body. Of dust we were created. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Okay. Now Paul gives us a little more clarity on that for believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6, six through 9. Let's turn there. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 9. He says, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have is our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's that separation. Death is separation. And there's, a, there's three types of death, probably. Uh, I won't go into those. But basically here, the, the term of sleep is applicable to the physical body. Uh, and, it, and it's in that it's lying down. If you think of sleep, there's a lot of similarity there between sleeping and what you see at, uh, perhaps at a funeral when someone's lying. Uh, I think it would help us to look at a little bit of the Greek uh, on this. Uh, the Greek word for cemetery, I'll start with. Before I go into that, though, let me say, I, you know, I do go to the Greek a lot in the teaching of this book, and you almost have to because the, the elementary nature of, of the English language just does not take us to the deeper understanding that we gain through the Greek. And so I think it's important sometimes to look at the Greek root words as we go through here. Now, coming back to cemetery, the word for cemetery in Greek is koimaterion. K-L-I-M-E-T-E-R-I-O-N, which means a sleeping place. Now, J. Vernon McGee says that this Greek word is also used as, quote, a rest house for strangers. We would call that an inn. Um, the word for sleep itself is koi mao mai, same, same root word, and it literally means to lie down and sleep. That's the same word that's used in uh, Luke 22:45, speaking of when Jesus is in Gethsemane praying and the disciples fall asleep while they're waiting for him. It's, so it's, it's the same as the word used for natural sleep. No difference here. And one other reason uh, to see that death here is talking about the body and not the spirit is found in the word for resurrection. Another Greek word, anastasis. Anastasis. And it comes from, the, it's a compound word. It comes from Histeni, uh, which means to stand, and ana, which means up. So it's to stand up. And uh, that can only refer to the body. So he's kind of softened the terms there, and that's how the believers to view death, because it's just our body that's, that, that's, that lies in death. The spirit goes to be with the Lord. Now let's return back to the text, uh, verse 14, chapter 4. It says... For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In Jesus. Okay? So verse 13 told the Thessalonians that they were not without hope. That's good. And then verse 14 goes on and gives a certainty and an assurance for the hope that they do have. And what is that? Our hope of resurrection, our hope of Christ's return is, is, is certain is the fact that he died on a cross for our sins, that he was laid in a tomb, dead, and that he arose on the third day. That gives us assurance. In fact, there's Romans 1, we're going to turn to that in a minute, Romans 1, 1 through 4, tells us that Jesus' resurrection was the Father, the Father's seal of approval and declaration of who Jesus was and what he accomplished at the cross. So let's turn Romans 4. It's a fabulous passage. Verses 1 through 4. 
and servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, that's God the Father, concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. So that was the Father's seal of, you know, the propitiation was acceptable, it was received, and it was put into effect, and it's available to us. And that, that resurrection was proof of that. It wasn't just that he went to the cross. That's major. But we have to include the whole thing, his, his rising from the dead. So far as his resurrection, his resurrection is, is proof that he has, Jesus has defeated death. And he has power over it. And has removed its sting for us. Do you see that? Death is sleep. Uh, it's proof that he's coming back for us too. So this leads to some questions going back to that verse. We need to know who, who are those who have fallen asleep in Jesus? Who do you think it, uh, that verse is pertaining to? Believers, absolutely. And the Thessalonians were worried about their, their uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who died. So that, in the broadest sense, is believers. Okay? Now, let's focus a little more. Who are those believers? Does that include everyone who's ever believed in the Lord or in Christ? Does it include, what I'm saying is, does it include Old Testament saints? Does it, is it just the church? What do you think? Say it again. From the beginning of time, all believers? I think it, it comes down to what does in Jesus mean? Because it says who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Um, we're going to see, in ver that's a verse uh, 14. When we get to verse 16, we're going to also see in Christ. In Christ. So what does that mean? Uh, I mean, I'm not prepared to say. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Daniel 12 there's a little blurb there, verses 1 and 2, that speaks. He's talking of what we call the tribulation of the 70th week. And then he talks about Daniel's people rising uh, in verse 2 of Daniel 12. Uh, some to, you know, everlasting uh, uh, punishment and some to everlasting joy. Uh, so I don't know. Um, yes. That's right. Job said that, and that was an affirmation of he, the fact that he understood resurrection clearly back then. Um, yes. So, in Christ, what does that mean? The term is actually used about forty times in the New Testament, and every time that it's used there, it refers to our position in Christ as part of the body of Christ. So there is an, an order of resurrection. There's not one single resurrection. Many people, especially on the street, uh, would, would say there's one resurrection. The, you know, you rise up and you're judged according to your works, you know, whether you, are, whether you go to heaven or not. Well, that's not right. 
there's a there is a major resurrection before the final judgment, but everyone involved in that resurrection uh, is not saved. Uh, there is Christ was spoken of his resurrection as being one of the first fruits, being the first fruit. So there is an order of resurrection. We also see in Revelation 20 there's another major resurrection because a lot of people are going to come to Christ when the church is gone. During, a, during that 70th week of Daniel, there'll be a, a, a lot of people come to the Lord. And so they, they need to be resurrected at some point. Whether or not that includes the Old Testament saints, I don't know. Uh, Lewis Barry Chafer wrote a book called uh, Salvation. And he said in it that at the moment of our salvation, at the moment of conversion, being saved, uh, there are at least 33 things that happen right away. And one of those is to be placed in Christ. Now, the scriptures explain that uh, as the Holy Spirit baptizes us uh, into the body of Christ, which we would call the church, and places us in Christ. The, the church is, uh, in, in, in some ways, it's an organism that represents the, the body of Christ here on earth. So, you know, if that's what in Christ is, I don't know. It may, it may be since, this, uh, since Pentecost up until the time the Lord comes. It may ju just be the church. I'm not prepared to say that's what it is. But it is, Christ is coming for his own, and they are in him. Uh, so then that brings me to this last question. What, Rob? saved through Christ, and we're told that it is in this life that we make our decision. Um, there are people in the Old Testament that were saved, but Christ hadn't come yet. They were saved, I just say, on credit, okay, believing what was coming. We're saved on a paid bill. So they looked forward to what we look backward to, but it's the same thing. We're all saved by the Lord. Right. Now, if they, if, if, you know, if we look at Luke 16, for instance, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, when they die, they both go to a place that's called uh, Abraham's bosom. One's Abraham's bosom, the other's in hell. Okay, well, the other's separated, okay, a place of torments. It, the Greeks and the Jews called it Sheol or Hades, and it's a holding place. And, it, and until the Lord came, those places were occupied one side being Abraham's bosom, you're right, or paradise, and the other uh, a place of torments or, or hell. And between them a great chasm fixed is what uh, Abraham tells the rich man that they cannot come over to it. And there, we, we see there's a consciousness in there. We see there's suffering on one side and not on the other. Do you have something, Kevin? Yeah, so on this 1 Peter 4, 6, verse, yeah. I see that as being uh, really talking about how we're all dead. In trespasses and sins? And we're all dead. 
you know, even though we're living and breathing, we're dead. Right, we're spiritually we're dead. dead. Spiritually so dead. So I see that as, as the Word of God is preached to those who are dead in their sins, and that through the preaching of the Gospel, we are born again through the Holy Spirit. And the Word does that. The Word creates life in us while we're dead or, or in our death. I don't think that this is necessarily okay. speaking to Christ going into hell and right. preaching to those because in another place it says that there's, there's one life, right? Mm-hmm. You have Hebrews 9.27. I see this is, is really speaking to why we preach to unbelievers. Okay. Why we I agree with what you've said. Why we've been preaching the gospel. Because it is the source of life. Jeff, you talked, 1 Peter, do you remember? I don't remember where they said, <clears> but as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, <clears> you know, that they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. To live in the spirit would be an indication of what we as believers do on earth. That's right. It's not, it, it doesn't seem to apply. It, it has a hard time fitting into um, those who are already dead to live according right. to the Spirit. Right? Well, I think the, the Scripture is pretty clear that it's in, it's in this life that we make our decision for or against the Lord. And uh, <clears throat> that's it, you know. Uh, Hebrews, I think it's 9.27, says, is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Of course, not everybody's going to die as we see in this passage before us about the rapture. So it's a general principle that Hebrews points up. Okay, uh, so let me go to the next question. What, does this, what is this phrase, or what do you think he's talking about when he says that, uh, let's see, if we believe that the Lord, God, even so God will bring with him, I think the him there is Jesus Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What does that mean? He's bringing the dead with him. In what sense? Spiritually. He has the, remember that spirit, that conscious part of us, the spirit. He's bringing, they are with him. They're absent from their body, present with the Lord. They're about to be resurrected. He's bringing them, and the bodies are going to be resurrected in this in this twinkling of an eye here, in this momentary flash. Okay, so this he's answering Paul's answering the questions from the Thessalonians concerning these dead. Let's pick it up in uh, verses fifteen and sixteen. Uh, <clears throat> Until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And here's that term again. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So he's, at, he's answering a major part of their question, the when part. When are these people going to be resurrected? How do they fit in with the uh, rapture? So I think that uh, we should focus on the, the declaration of the uh, authority associated with the statement that Paul is making. He says, not only am I answering your question, but this is God's answer to your question. Okay, he says, by the authority. Excuse me, he says, by the word of the Lord. Okay, and the answer is this. And listen, not only are the deceased Thessalonian believers and really all of the dead in Christ. Not only are they included in the rapture, but they're going to go ahead of you 
in the rapture. And they're going to go ahead of the living, living believers. You all see that? And then, very interestingly, you know, when you get into this part of Thessalonians, you start to really pay attention to the pronouns that are being used. Paul gives another evidence of the fact that he taught eminency here. And he says, look at the group he includes himself in when he, when he writes this. He says, and we who are alive and remain until the coming will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. So Paul, in that verse, is, is including himself with the living when he says we. Pronouns are important. Right. It's any moment, but he doesn't say that's an assured thing. But if we, ha- if we expect a moment-by-moment return of the Lord, you know, we believe that. I mean, you and I have talked about this before at lunch, and, you know, and I know you expect to go, and I would like to go, and yeah, it's great. Um, but, you know, some, some uh, uh, students have taught that Paul changed his mind about this eminency later on in his, uh, in his uh, ministry. Uh, and they point to uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 12, 14. Let's turn there real quick. 2 Corinthians 4, 12, 12 through 14 says, <clears throat> so, death, so death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Now in that verse, he seems to include himself with those who would be raised bodily in resurrection. But then there's another verse that he wrote in Philippians 3.20, 3.20 and 3.21, Philippians. Let me read that. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. So here, you know, and, and so in Philippians, he's writing from a jail. This is toward the end of his life. And he's still looking to heaven for his Savior. So I think that probably the best understanding of, of the way he's written here is to, when we're, when we're looking at the imminent return of Christ, is to look for Jesus, to come at any moment. We have that uh, ability to do that. And yet realize that we may never, we may reach heaven first by way of death because no man knows the hour of his return. That's right. Christ, Christ said that we don't know the hour of his return. And even he at that time in his earthly ministry uh, didn't uh, have that knowledge available to him. Uh, but so we shouldn't put date. That's the main thing is not to put dates on these things. When you start to do that, you really detract from the comfort of the message that it is and the any moment expectation that we have. Let's return, uh, okay, verse 16 then. Did y'all notice that it's the Lord himself that's going to come in the air, right? And just as he promised, that's the promise that he, that he speaks of in John 14, 3. Uh, and there are three features mentioned regarding that event. Did you get those? There's a shout, 
There's the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. Now the word for shout that's used here is a particular uh, military, like a military command. And uh, it's much like the same way Jesus, do you recall when Lazarus, his, Lazarus, his friend died, and he came, that's Martha and Mary's brother, I think, and he came uh, to, the, uh, to the tomb. He'd been dead four days. What did, what did Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. And it's that type of a command, that type of a shout that I would expect. That's in John 14.3. Regarding the voice of the archangel, it specifically says the voice. Now, uh, McGee, J. Vernon McGee, is, is pretty adamant that it's only Jesus that comes and he doesn't need angels for anything. I'm not prepared to say that. Uh, he says that it's just the voice. But I would say if it is an angel, we're told it's an archangel. Now, the only archangel that's named is who? Michael, right? And he's, now, he's got a notable connection to Israel. We see in, 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 back in Daniel, in chapter 10 and 12, we see that he's uh, connected to Israel specially as their protector, Michael. Um, but he's also seen as probably uh, the, the primary supernatural being or an angel who especially contends with Satan as well. And we see that in Jude the book of Jude, and we see it in Revelation chapter 12. And, you know, the removal of Christ's own, his church, if that be it, uh, is certainly a victory over Satan, so I wouldn't be surprised to see Michael there. Now, thirdly, the trump of God is heard, and whether that's actual or not isn't fully understood. You know, uh, in Revelation uh, 1, Chapter one, verses ten and eleven. I'll turn there. Uh, John is, you know, he's exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and he's he's in the spirit. It says, uh, "This is John writing." I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, "And then Jesus speaks, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira." and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So the voice, what he thought was a trumpet, was a voice. Yes? It's reiterated in 1 Corinthians 15 as well that it's a trumpet involved. You know, when, when the Jews were in uh, Sinai, uh, go, you know, in the 40 years in the wilderness, the, they would begin their day and end their day with the sound of trumpets. All right? And so there's a comparison there of the moving of God's people in total by the sound of a trumpet. And I can sure see the application you know, to the church at that point. So I don't know other than that. Uh, well, and in the synagogues, they would blow the shofar seven times to say, okay, it's time to go on. Once that trumpet is blown, boom, the river shakes. That's it. That's the last trump for that day. Okay. I think I can get through this. Are y'all ready to break? <laughs> I just have one more page of notes. Um, 
let's turn, uh, anyway, verses 15 and 16 that we just read. Is that right? They're primarily concerning the dead in Christ. And lest we think we're left out if we're living, there's, the companion passage would be in 1 Corinthians 15. I think that if we're going to talk about this topic, we need to look at that. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Let me, let me turn there. It says, this is again Paul writing. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Now we know sleep means death. We will not all die. But we will all be changed. Changed in a certain way. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. Okay. And remember I talked about when the Lord comes to get us and take us. We have to be made fit for heaven. And this is, you know, for the dead, that's called resurrection. For the living, that's, that's a translation, or a, uh, the Greek is a metamorphosis, which is a, tra- a changing. You think of a caterpillar crawling into the little thing, encapsulation, coming out a beautiful butterfly. You know, I've always had that example presented. But anyway, we have to be made fit for heaven. And whatever resurrection is for the believer, the body's going to be, we're going to be the same fitness for heaven at that point. All right, verses 17 and 18, uh, we will wrap it up. Uh, sorry? Don't do it? Okay. You're going to rush it. We're going to Okay. Well, because my, my goal, you know, is maybe to wrap up the chapter 5 next week. But let's do stop here because it is good. Because this is like the whole application of the passage up to this point. We want to see the comfort in all of this. This is doctrine. We want comfort. All right. So we will close. Kevin, will you close us in prayer today?